PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. Physical therapists diagnose and treat people of all ages with all types of health conditions to help keep them moving and functioning in daily life. Welcome to this PTJ podcast. PTJ is the official publication of the American Physical Therapy Association. PTJ disseminates basic and applied science related to physical therapy, contributes evidence to guide clinical decision-making, and publishes scholarly perspectives from around the world. And now, your host, Donovan Stutel. Welcome to PTJ's Audio Abstracts for Volume 89, April 2009. This month's research reports focus on falls in the Medicare population, pectoralis minor muscle lengthening, and Longitudinal Construct Validity of the GMFM-88 and GMFM-66. This month's case reports focus on an ergonomic intervention for upper extremity and neck pain and constraint-induced movement therapy in individuals after cerebral hemispherectomy. This issue also features two perspectives on sleep and motor learning and a sensory motor agility exercise program for people with Parkinson disease. Also, available April 10th, listen to Healthcare Research Provisions in the Stimulus Bill, a special discussion podcast with Dr. Alan Jetty and Dr. Justin Moore, APTA Director of Federal Government Affairs. That podcast and many others, as well as clinical summaries, invited commentaries, and e-letters to the editor, are available at www.ptjournal.org. First this month, Falls in the Medicare Population, Incidents, Associated Factors, and Impact on Healthcare by Dr. Anne Shumway Cook, Dr. Marcia Seal, Dr. Jean Hoffman, Dr. Brian Dudgeon, Dr. Catherine Yorkston, and Dr. Leighton Chan. This abstract is presented by Dave Corvoisier. Falls are a major health problem in the elderly community. However, questions exist regarding incidents, risk factors, and provider response to falls. The purpose of this study was to examine the incidence of falls, associated factors, healthcare costs, and provider response to falls among Medicare beneficiaries. The participants were more than 12,600 respondents to the Medicare Current Beneficiaries Survey from 2002. The following categories were created from the falls supplement to the Medicare Current Beneficiaries Survey. 1. Number of falls, no falls, one fall, or recurrent falls. And 2. Injury type, either medically injurious or not medically injurious. Means and proportions for the entire Medicare population were estimated using sampling weights. The association between sociodemographic variables and fall status was modeled using ordinal or binary logistic regression. Aggregate health costs by fall category were estimated from claims data. Based on the 2002 Medicare Current Beneficiary Survey, this study reports annual population estimates of falls as 3.7 million people having a single fall, an additional 3.1 million people having recurrent falls, and 2.2 million people having a medically injurious fall. Recurrent falls were more likely with the following. Increased age, being female, being non-white, reporting fair or poor health, Increased number of limitations in personal activities of daily living or instrumental activities of daily living, and increased number of comorbidities. Although estimates of the actual costs of falls could not be determined, 
fallers consistently had larger utilization costs than non-fallers in 2002. 48% of the beneficiaries reported talking to a health care provider following a fall, and 60% of those beneficiaries reported receiving fall prevention information. Falls are common and may be associated with significant health care costs. Most importantly, health care providers may be missing many opportunities to provide fall prevention information to older people. Lead author Dr. Ann Shumway Cook is Professor Emeritus in the Department of Rehabilitation Medicine at the University of Washington in Seattle, Washington. Next, lengthening of the pectoralis minor muscle during passive shoulder motions and stretching techniques, a cadaveric biomechanical study by Dr. Takeyuki Muraki, Dr. Mitsuhiro Aoki, Tomoki Izumi, Misaki Fuji, Egi Hidaka, and Dr. Shigenori Miyamoto. Lengthening of the pectoralis minor muscle during passive shoulder motions and the effect of stretching techniques for this muscle are unclear. The purposes of this study were, one, to investigate the amount and pattern of the lengthening between passive shoulder motions, and two, to determine which stretching technique affected the greatest change in the length of the pectoralis minor muscle. Nine fresh cadaveric transthoracic specimens were used for this study. Lengthening in the lateral and medial fiber group of the pectoralis minor muscle was directly measured during three passive shoulder motions, flexion, scaption, and external rotation at 90 degrees of abduction, and during three stretching techniques, horizontal abduction, scapular retraction at 0 degrees of flexion, and scapular retraction at 30 degrees of flexion. The measurement was conducted by using a precise displacement sensor. Although the length of the pectoralis minor muscle linearly increased during all shoulder motions, lengthening during flexion and scaption was steeper and significantly larger than lengthening during external rotation at 90 degrees of abduction. For the stretching techniques, the pectoralis minor muscle was stretched more with horizontal abduction and with scapular retraction at 30 degrees of flexion than with scapular retraction at 0 degrees of flexion. In comparison with lengthening at 150 degrees of flexion, scapular retraction at 30 degrees of flexion significantly stretched the medial fiber group of the muscle. The extensive lengthening of the pectoralis minor muscle is necessary during shoulder motions, especially during flexion and scaption. Scapular retraction at 30 degrees of flexion makes the greatest change in the length of the pectoralis minor muscle. This study suggests the importance of the pectoralis minor muscle in shoulder motion and provides anatomical and biomechanical evidence that might guide appropriate selection of stretching techniques. A video of the lengthening of the pectoralis minor muscle during passive elevation in the scapular plane is available, along with this article, at www.ptjournal.org. Lead author Dr. Takeyuki Muraki is a doctoral student in the doctoral course of physical therapy in the Graduate School of Health Sciences at Sapporo Medical University in Sapporo, Japan. Next, longitudinal construct validity of the GMFM88 total score and goal total score and the GMFM66 score in a five-year follow-up study by Annika lundqvist Yosenby, Dr. Gunn-Britt Yarnlow, Dr. Christina Gummesen, and Dr. Eva Nordmark. 
The Gross Motor Function Measure, or GMFM, is the instrument most commonly used to measure gross motor function in children with cerebral palsy. Different scoring options have been developed and their measurement properties have been assessed. However, limited information is available regarding longitudinal construct validity. The objective of this research was to study the longitudinal construct validity of three scoring options. The 88-item GMFM total score, the 88-item GMFM goal total score, and the 66-item GMFM score. A clinical measurement design was used in this study. 41 children with cerebral palsy diplegia who were undergoing selective dorsal rhizotomy were monitored with the GMFM for five years. The mean age when the selective dorsal rhizotomy was performed was 4.4 years old. The researchers created two subgroups for gross motor function before surgery using the Gross Motor Function Classification System, or GMFCS. The first subgroup was GMFCS levels 1, 2, and 3. The second subgroup was GMFCS levels 4 and 5. This study included results obtained before the selective dorsal rhizotomy and results obtained at 6 months, 12 months, 18 months, 3 years, and 5 years after the selective dorsal rhizotomy. The effect size and the standardized response mean were then calculated. At 6 months after the operation, effect size and standardized response mean values were small for all GMFM scoring options. At 12 months after the operation, the 88-item GMFM total and goal total scores showed large changes in effect sizes and standardized response means whereas the 66-item GMFM scores showed lower effect sizes and standardized response means for both subgroups. Later, after the operation, larger values for longitudinal construct validity were found. The effect size and standardized response mean values generally were lower for the 66-item GMFM scores than for the 88-item GMFM total and goal total scores. A limitation of the study was that all children underwent an extensive intervention and changes in gross motor function were expected. All three scoring options showed large longitudinal construct validity in the long-term follow-up. The 88-item GMFM total and goal total scores revealed large changes in gross motor function earlier postoperatively than the 66-item GMFM scores. Lead author Annika lundqvist Yosenby is a Ph.D. student in the Department of Health Sciences Division of Physiotherapy at Lund University and Pediatric Physiotherapist at Children's Hospital, Lund University Hospital, both in Lund, Sweden. Our first case report is Ergonomic Intervention in the Treatment of a Patient with Upper Extremity and Neck Pain by Dr. Philip Fabrizio. Work-related musculoskeletal disorders are widespread among computer users and costly to the healthcare system. Workstation setup and worker postures contribute to upper extremity and neck symptoms among computer users. 
ergonomic interventions such as work risk analysis and workstation modifications can improve workers' symptoms. However, ergonomic interventions do not appear to be a common component of traditional physical therapy treatment. The patient was a 26-year-old woman with right upper extremity pain and neck pain who was referred for physical therapy. A course of traditional physical therapy treatment was performed, followed by an ergonomic intervention. Following four weeks of traditional physical therapy, the patient's resting pain level improved by one centimeter on the visual analog scale, but her pain level during exacerbations did not change. An ergonomic intervention was performed following traditional physical therapy. At the conclusion of the full course of treatment, that is, traditional physical therapy plus the ergonomic intervention, the patient's resting pain level decreased by 4.6 centimeters on the visual analog scale, and her pain level during exacerbations decreased by 3.2 centimeters. Her rapid upper limb assessment and work style scores also improved. This case report demonstrates the importance of examining the work habits and work-related postures of a patient who complains of upper extremity pain and neck pain that is exacerbated by work. Providing an ergonomic intervention in concert with traditional physical therapy may be the most beneficial course of treatment. Dr. Philip Fabrizio is clinical instructor in the Division of Physical Therapy at Georgia State University in Atlanta, Georgia. Next, Constraint-Induced Movement Therapy for Individuals After Cerebral Hemispherectomy, a case series by Dr. Stella DeBoda, Dr. Stacy Fritz, Christy Weir-Haynes, and Dr. Gary Mathern. This case report describes the feasibility and efficacy of the use of constraint-induced movement therapy in four individuals aged 12 to 22 years who underwent cerebral hemispherectomy. Their age at time of surgery was between 4 and 10 years. The aims of this case series were, 1. To evaluate the feasibility of this therapeutic approach involving a shortened version of constraint-induced movement therapy. 2. To examine improvements that occurred within the upper extremity of the hemiparetic side. 3. To investigate the feasibility of conducting brain imaging in individuals with depressed mental ages. And 4 to examine changes in the sensory motor cortex following intervention. The patients received a shortened version of constraint-induced movement therapy for three hours each day for a period of 10 days. In addition, a standard resting splint was used for the unimpaired hand for an 11-day period. Each patient was encouraged to wear the splint for 90% of his or her waking hours. The following outcome measures were used the actual amount of use test, the box and block test, and the upper extremity grasping and motor portions of the Fugelmeyer assessment of motor recovery. Immediately after therapy, improvements were found in the actual amount of use test scores and the box and block test scores, but no improvements were found in the Fugelmeyer scores. Three patients underwent brain imaging before and after therapy and showed qualitative changes consistent with reorganization of sensory motor cortical representations of both paretic and non-paretic hands in one isolated hemisphere. The findings suggest that constraint-induced movement therapy may be a feasible method of rehabilitation in individuals with chronic hemiparesis, possibly leading to neuroplastic therapy-related changes in the brain. Lead author Dr. Stella DeBoda 
is Senior Researcher and Assistant Professor in the Sector of Child Neuropsychology at the University Medical Center Utrecht, Wilhelmina Children's Hospital in Utrecht, the Netherlands. Our first perspective article is, Does Sleep Promote Motor Learning? Implications for Physical Rehabilitation, by Dr. Catherine Siang-Sukan and Dr. Lara Boyd. For young people who are healthy, sleep, following motor skill practice, has repeatedly been demonstrated to enhance motor skill learning offline. In offline motor skill learning, continued overnight improvements in a motor skill are not associated with additional physical practice. Mounting evidence suggests that older people who are healthy fail to demonstrate sleep-dependent offline motor learning. However, little is known regarding the influence of sleep on motor skill enhancement following damage to the brain. Emerging evidence suggests that individuals with brain damage, particularly following stroke, do benefit from sleep to promote offline motor skill learning. Rehabilitation following stroke requires learning new motor skills and relearning old motor skills. Therefore, awareness that individuals with stroke benefit from a period of sleep following motor skill practice to enhance skill learning could affect physical therapist practice. The objective of this article is to present the evidence demonstrating sleep-dependent offline motor learning in young people who are healthy and the variables that may influence this beneficial sleep-dependent skill enhancement. In young people who are healthy, these variables include the stages of memory formation, the type of memory, the type of instruction provided, implicit versus explicit learning, and the task utilized. The neuromechanisms thought to be associated with sleep-dependent offline motor learning also are considered. The article discusses research examining whether older adults who are healthy show the same benefits of sleep as do younger adults. The data suggests that older adults who are healthy do not benefit from sleep to promote offline skill enhancement. The article presents a possible explanation for the apparent lack of sleep-dependent offline motor learning by older adults who are healthy. Last, the article considers emerging evidence showing that individuals with chronic stroke demonstrate sleep-dependent offline motor skill learning, and it discusses some of the possible mechanisms for this effect. Lead author Dr. Catherine Siang-Sukan is Research Assistant Professor in the Department of Physical Therapy and Rehabilitation Science at the University of Kansas Medical Center in Kansas City, Kansas. Last this month, Delaying Mobility Disability in People with Parkinson Disease Using a Sensory Motor Agility Exercise Program by Dr. Lori King and Dr. Faye Horak. This article introduces a new framework for therapists to develop an exercise program to delay mobility disability in people with Parkinson disease. Mobility, or the ability to efficiently navigate and function in a variety of environments, requires balance, agility, and flexibility all of which are affected by Parkinson disease. This article summarizes recent research identifying how constraints on mobility that are specific to Parkinson's disease, such as rigidity, bradykinesia, freezing, poor sensory integration, inflexible program selection, and impaired cognitive processing, limits mobility in people with the disease. 
Based on these constraints, a conceptual framework for exercises that maintain and improve mobility is presented. The article presents an example of a constraint-focused agility exercise program incorporating movement principles from Taiji, kayaking, boxing, lunges, agility training, and Pilates exercises. This new constraint-focused agility exercise program is based on a strong scientific framework and includes progressive levels of sensory motor, resistance, and coordination challenges that can be customized for each patient while maintaining fidelity. Principles for improving mobility presented here can be incorporated into an ongoing or long-term exercise program for people with Parkinson's disease. Lead author Dr. Lori King is postdoctoral fellow at the Oregon Health and Sciences University in Portland, Oregon. Thanks for listening. This is a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net. We always appreciate your feedback. You can email ptj at scienceaudio.net or leave a voicemail at 626-593-7825.